There isn't a political party in South Africa that is openly motivating for a tax decrease. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Which tells you something, you know. Mark, hi, good morning. And good morning to you, sir. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're being all formal today. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. Welcome everyone to our podcast. You know, Mark, I have to say the news over the past week has been depressing. Oh, in buckets. Yeah. It's just been awful. Yeah. The most depressing thing, I don't know, for me was the death of Navalny. So we don't know why he died. Country. We still don't have an explanation. Nobody trusts anything that comes out of Russia. But you know what it means? I think it means that, you know, from a South African perspective, it means that the Mandela option is off the table. You know, during the apartheid era, I think the apartheid apartheid, so they, you know, they always realized that someday there's going to have to be change. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it was just like, just in case, we better make sure that these guys on Robben Island, you know, are still, don't, don't, nothing happens to them. And yeah. the death of Navalny in Russia means that there's no future option. There's no Mandela who will come down from the mountain and make Russia an acceptable member of the international community again. Unless, of course, you get rid of the root cause of that outcome. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there'll always be other people, you know. It's not, yeah. but still, the chances that it will happen yeah. are less, right? Yeah. You have to say the decision of the ANC Secretary General to, to go and visit yeah. Russia last week hasn't aged well, if we can put it that way. It's something we can talk about. I want to talk about the budget expectations lately. But, it, you know, we need to reflect beyond a political view on the economic consequences of the various relationships that we're developing and undeveloping around the world, you know. What are those consequences going to be? Who are we befriending and why? You know, why are we sending troops to the DRC? You know, I don't understand all of the rules that surround that, but I, I can tell you that we are not independent of world trade and foreign direct investment if we're talking about a future in South Africa. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's terribly sad that, it, that you can't, stand up and protest without fearing for your life. And it's usually because what you say is too true to be acknowledged. Yeah. Okay. And so, yeah, well, horrible. Absolutely horrible. Anyway, let's move on to the budget. Not necessarily a much more sort of happier prospect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is an election year, so you can't expect too much out of the budget, Rao. What do you think? I think there's some principles. The first one is, do you want to raise taxes? paid or do you want to raise tax rates? Okay, so I would be in the corner that says, let's get the economy going so that firms make more money so that we earn more tax. Juxtaposition that with the fact that we're not getting the economy going and there's no increased revenue coming out of uh, profitable ventures. And we, we start resorting to the regulatory pot of income, which is, you know, increased tax rates increase the value of properties that you can charge a higher municipal rate on them, you know, VAT, petrol, you know, you just name all of those things, which by decree can bring income into the country. And now I've heard that there's more and more discussion about whether we should use the contingency reserves and so on and so on. And so on. As we step away from the fact that state revenue, the sole source ultimately of state revenue is taxes from profitable endeavors towards a regulatory-founded source of income, the closer we go to uh, the death spiral of, you know, a failed state. I don't know what your thoughts are, too. 
Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, just to uh, fill in some of the details on that uh, topic. So in November, the Minister of Finance, Mr. Guano, said that it seemed as though the budget deficit was going to be about, about 55 billion short. The reason was precisely because of lower taxes, mainly from the income tax from the mining sector. So that accounts for about 65% of the shortfall. And there was a little bit of an increase in personal income tax, or there was a better than forecast upward revision of income tax by about 6 billion. Anyway, the point is that he's got to find 15 billion rand, but that's the issue in the budget. And the question is, how does he find it? The one possibility, of course, is that he lets the deficit go up a bit. That means that a deficit over 5% and the debt GDP number sort of goes up a bit too. So that would mean debt would be about 75% of GDP rather than the 72% that it is at the moment. Anyway, those are the numbers. They are not pretty. The reason for it is just completely obvious. We've had a terrible year of load shedding. Load shedding hits everybody and everything. And the question is, can we get out of this mess? That's the story. The other, for me, always an indicator of how well you are. It's a bit like one of those, you know, basic tests that you go through when you go to the doctor, your blood pressure and your heart rate and so on, is the real interest rates that we are having to pay for capital. Okay, so it seems to me that consensus about the inflation is like 45 to 5%. And yields on government bonds, you know, range in the near term from something like, I don't know, 8.5% for the three-month RSA to, you know, I don't know, 11% for the 12-year long bond. You know, and let's, let's, just look at the, let's just look at the 10-year RSA bond, which has always been the bellwether. You know, at 10.1%, that's sort of double inflation. We've got a 5% real rate that we're having to pay in order to raise capital. Now, that is embedded with so many messages, Tim, I mean, about yeah. the so-called risk-free rate. Eh? Yeah. How are we encouraged in that set of circumstances to take our money out of the bank and put it into, you know, growth stocks and things of that nature when the risk-free rate is double inflation? No, no. And, you know, you can see this and you can sort of see this in the capital movement. And there isn't a financial advisor in South Africa who doesn't give the following piece of advice to South Africa. <laughs> I can't wait. Yeah. Wait, wait. It says wait. That's what they all say. Wait, it's coming next time. Yeah. They say, take your money and put it in America. Yeah. That's what they say. They say, take your money, put it offshore. Mm. Putting your money offshore gives you a defense against the decline of the value of the rand. It gives you a defense against inflation. It gives you a defense against the, the sort of poor economic decisions in South Africa. It's just the sensible thing to do. I agree with that. But it's the sensible thing in quotes to do, or is it the defensive strategy? Okay. And so... You know, if we are all in the defensive mindset, wanting to preserve capital outside of this country, then absolutely for sure, that's going to be a, a self-fulfilling philosophy. And so I reckon at some point in time, the risk-return equation for Africa generally as a huge population that's got more characteristics than, you know, this we've got time to list here. At some point, the risk-return equation makes sense. And you go, listen, the rest of the world is not looking so pretty. And our risk-return equation is yielding, you know, significantly higher running yields. Maybe I should have a dip. So I, I, I accept that there's a defensive strategy against currency and against inflation, against all of these things. But if too many people leave and nobody comes, then the root cause of that is actually founded in policy. Yeah. Not arithmetic. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, no, no. Totally right. I mean, <laughs> you know, I couldn't help noticing that South Africa's 
politicians, you know, gradually their election manifestos are coming out. I mean, they're completely unsurprising, right? But, you know, there's new figures on the scene. One of them is, you know, this Roger Jardine effort. And his proposal is a kind of, you know, is a big 500 billion wealth and pensions tax to reconstruct South Africa. Right. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> My feeling about that is, you know, okay, okay. I don't mind the idea of a, you know, of a Marshall Plan for South Africa. This is great. But could we first have a demonstration of running the existing economy effectively before we do that so that we don't take more money out of the economy to throw at, you know, d dysfunctional projects yeah. and sort of half-cock ideas? And, you know, the, 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 there isn't a political party in South Africa that is openly motivating for a tax decrease, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> which tells you something, you know. I don't know whether a tax decrease is what we need. What do you think? I mean, would, would, would you support that idea, Tuki? Well, you know what I think? I, I think, first of all, you talked about, you know, demonstrate your ability. I think you've got to stand back and let capital choose its own destination, okay? A little bit. So, you know, as the state, if you want to build a state asset, you know, I was a friend of mine was just in the suit this last weekend. He marveled at the Cutsy Dam. And, I, you know, in my good old days of banking, we were involved in raising the capital to build that for the Lesotho Highlands Development Authority. It was a fascinating experience because as merchant bankers, we were once taken to sort of climb up the wall. And I don't know if you understand, those walls are convex, and at some point they turn <laughs> in on themselves. It was the most terrifying experience of my life. It was this trickling of a river that has become this huge dam which supplies goodness knows how many giga cubic meters of water to us in due course and so on. And so uh, if you said to someone, can you build a dam or can you build a set of roads, or can you build a railroad, or can you, but you can have it and manage it and operate it yourselves, and there's some sort of transfer of ownership at some point in time, subject to some tests when me, the investor and operator, have got my returns and so on, then I think we'd have a rush of investment. The, the challenge is, which you, I think, are alluding to, is who's going to manage the money? Who's going to look after the money, you know? And so if you said a municipality, some arbitrary municipality, which is a manifest failure, wants to get more capital, there's no foundation to give them more capital because they ain't done much with the lot. lot. Okay. And so I think we have to open, stand aside and enable investment capital and have some rules about how we share in that success, both in terms of the capital that it creates and the income that we can earn from it as the state. But we're not in that mindset. As a government that's used to being in charge, we like being in charge. Instead of enabling, we restrict and govern. How's that for a fun talk, man? It's <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, full of laughs. Full of laughs. <laughs> isn't that, isn't that going to bring the bloody house down? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, Tim. I was going down one of my YouTube rabbit holes, and the question that this sort of online economist was asking was which is the most successful country in the world? And the most successful country in the world is Norway. And the reason it's successful is because it has some very surprising advantages, one of which was lots of rivers and lots of moving water, which gave them an advantage in, in the industrialization process. They could use hydropower. And, and hydropower is now, you know, 100% of yeah, natural. the power that is used by Norway. And then they found oil, <laughs> <laughs> which they don't use. They just export all of it and gas. And they handled it very carefully and all of that sort of thing. 
But here's the interesting thing that's relevant to this conversation. Okay. When they found oil, there was no oil expertise in Norway, yeah. but they made this quite big discovery of North Sea oil, right? So what did they do in this situation? They started a public-private partnership. They didn't want the, the oil you know, to, to be permanently in the hands of foreigners. They wanted it to be controlled by the Norwegian state eventually. So what they did was they, they signed public-private partnerships with oil companies to get the oil out, right? But here's the interesting thing. How long were those partnerships? They were 80 years. They signed 80-year public-private partnerships. It's amazing, hey? I, I mean, it's just very surprising that you should be so insightful wow. that you say, A, we can't do this. Yeah. B, we need the foreign companies. C, let's give them 80 years to make their money back yeah. before we, by agreement, transfer the resource to ourselves. We're saying, yeah. very insightful. Yeah. Yeah. That's maturity. That is deep maturity and insight. And you just said they won the game. Okay. Now, yes. that is a case, exact case study for any resource rich country, such as we are. Okay. That doesn't have expertise covering all manner of those investment opportunities. You know, water, we've also got water. Okay. We, although we, the, uh, somewhere I read long ago that we're the 30th, thirstiest country in the world, we've still got water. Our issue is not the source of water. Our issue is the destination of water. You know, it's getting it into the taps. And so, again, all of these things could be solved, Tim, if we had these kinds of partnerships and we just feasted off our natural gifted resources, including the people and resilience that we've demonstrated over the last forever. Anyway, so you know what? I'm going to move on. It is SOPA this week. It was SONA, and now it's SOPA. Tonight, there is the State of the Provinces addresses, as I understand it, and there are two happening at the same time. So now, I don't know who did that plan, but you can either listen to the Gauteng State of the Province, or you can listen to the Western <laughs> Cape State of the Province. So, right. How's that? And what do you think they're going to say? And do you think the Cape is just going to stand up and ask for independence <laughs> again? <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. I mean, you know, provinces in South Africa don't matter. That's the truth. No, well, I, I agree they don't matter. So how do we construct and deconstruct the some of the parts that, that are our provinces with all their different vested attributes and shortcomings? Anyway, I wanted to go back to my number. You raised last week, I think it was, the Super Bowl and the previous year's attendance. Well, this year's attendance has now been made public, and I'm sure you know what it is, don't you, Tim? It's a lot. Viewership. Viewership. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. A, it's, a, it's a lot. It's 123 million. Wow. 123 million people watched the Super Bowl, and that's not only because of Taylor Swift. It was also because of the football. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think, I think. And then a friend of mine, my roommate from school, became a very successful avocado pear farmer, and he said to me, Mark, have I got a statistic about the Super Bowl for you? And I said, what is that? He said, well, there are more avocado pears consumed on the day of the Super Bowl than are exported annually from South Africa. Wow. Okay. For guacamole, I presume. Guacamole. Amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, the opportunities for us everywhere. Go to Super Bowl. <laughs> Take some hammers. Yeah. yeah. Well, my number of the week has to do with the number 65. Oh, goodness me. 
why do you think I would come up with that number, Mark? Because it's kind of personal and close, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I've been, by the way, for the record, I've been there, done that. Okay, so. uh, no, it's not, in fact, the fact that I turned 65 last week. That's <laughs> no, fortuitous. Yeah. That's fortuitous. It is the fact that there are now more 65-year-old Americans than they ever have been in history. And here's the interesting part of that statistic. Around about 20% of 65-year-olds in America still work, and that is double the number who worked 35 years ago. You know, most people retire at 65. I asked my boss if I could retire. He said no. Because you're so valuable, Tim. It's not to do with your age. What would, where would they be without you, Tim? Okay. You know. No, no, no. It's, it's because I signed a, a contract of servitude, not a contract of employment, which is, uh, was small. Uh, this, people are going to listen to this, by the way. You just make sure you're not safe. People are going to hear this, but okay. Yeah. Anyway, it got me thinking about retirement. There is a looming retirement crisis coming. I mean, there just is. You, we just know. Oh, absolutely. So my, my number of the week actually isn't that it's 65. It's this. In 2050, that's, you know, basically 25 years from now, there will be 80 retired Japanese people to every 100 people working. So in other words, it's almost sort of close to one-to-one. -one. And, you know, it's pretty close in Italy, Spain, South Korea. Even in um, Germany and France, there'll be you know, one retired person for every two people working. This is a looming crisis, as everybody knows. It's an extraordinary crisis. You eventually end up with four generations in one household, which is a social complexity that no one has figured the answer out to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Japan rather famously passed the aging test some years ago when more nappies were sold to Japanese men than to newborn babies, okay? So it's not a pleasant thing to look forward to, to, look forward to but there, we are... We are, in my view, compounding the process here, the problem here, by allowing people access to their pension funds, you know, the two-part system and being able to borrow against you. And that is creating uh, even more of a welfare state than we've got now because, you know, it's absolutely ludicrous and stupid to consume what you will not be able to earn in retirement, that which you can earn now. You know, and to adjust your living standards appropriately. And, and I used to work in that pension funds world, and every time someone withdrew from a pension fund, it created what was well known as a withdrawal surplus. Okay, so the pension fund profits when that obligation goes away. And so the, the arithmetic is obvious. Yeah, we we all going to be looking after our aged, but by 2050, tell me if someone's still looking after me, I promise you, I won't know the difference. Okay. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> they should just leave me there and kind of hopefully load shedding yes. and sort me out. Okay. Yeah. All right. Have a good budget. Happy week. This show is part of the Africa Podcast Network. For the biggest pod, pod network on the continent. For sales inquiries, please, please contact, contact us at info at africapodcastnetwork.com.